I don't think we should worry as much on what AI could do, but rather more on what humans can do with AI. Humans now get a, a type of access to information that we didn't have before. So on one hand, the AI can help us really figure out things that would have been very difficult to figure out uh, before then, even if those are malicious things. On the other hand, AIs can also, just like social media, can have this accelerating effect with echo chambers and, and, and so on. So there's a similar danger with AI where the humans will use the AI to figure things out Everything they figure out will go back into the AI as training data for the next generation. Hey, Bob WP here, and welcome to All Things WordPress, a Do The Woo podcast by the community for the community. Today's show is brought to you by GoDaddy. Whether you're just starting to build that Woo shop for a client or looking to expand or scale an existing site, GoDaddy's e-commerce hosting solution is there for you and your projects over at GoDaddy.com. And Jetpack, where you can now customize your client sites with over seven individual plugins that do one thing and they do it good. So you can check them out at Jetpack.com. And I'll tell you more about our sponsor later in the show. But... As you heard, this is all things WordPress. This is just the beginning of a new show that will be under the Do The Woo Network, so you will learn more about what to expect from it over the next couple months. But to give you an idea, this episode, we bring in Bud Krause and Mark Westgard as co-hosts for a conversation with Elaine Schlesler about, well, you can guess, AI. As we continue to get into the perspectives of how AI is growing and what it brings to WordPress and Woo. So let's go ahead and dive right in. Hello, everyone. My name is Bud Krause, and I am so happy to be one of the co-hosts for today's Do the Woo. And with me today is Mark Westgard from WS Form. And our guest, our very special guest that we will be asking lots of questions to in a few minutes is Elaine Schlesser. So rather than have me do all the introductions, Mark, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and then Elaine? Sure. Thanks for having me, bud. I'm Mark Westgard from WS Form. I'm the founder of WS Form. And WS Form is a WordPress form plugin. And I've been in the WordPress space. I'm quite a newbie compared to some people. I've been in this space about, I don't know, 10 years and actually doing business in the WordPress space for about five years. Yeah, happy to be on the show. Thanks for having me. And now, Elaine. Yes, thanks for having us, Bud. It's really an honor to talk on a podcast here. My name is Alesh Lesser. I'm the Director of Technology and Innovation with XWP. I'm also the maintainer of WPCLI. I have been active in the WordPress space since... 2014, I think, which is neither a newbie nor one of the old god. I have been doing IT work for a lot longer than that, but I decided at some point that I was in the WordPress space for the community and I have been enjoying and regretting that choice ever since <laughs> for several <laughs> reasons. It has always been a technical challenge to deal with WordPress, but it has always been just just a pleasure to deal with the WordPress community and the people that made, make it up. We had the good fortune in WordCamp New York 
2018 to have you come. And I don't know if you remember what you spoke about, but it was using Gutenberg and how to transform your existing code so that it will work with Gutenberg. That shows you how long ago that was, right? But I'm glad you came. Tell us, how did you get to XWP? I know at WordCamp Europe, you told my wife that you have been tinkering with code since you were, what, three years old in the crib or something like that for a long time. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So talk a little bit about that journey. I know it's a long one. How did you get to where you are today? So it was not at three years, but rather at seven years that I started doubling with computers for the first time. In the beginning, that was a purely theoretical exercise because I was not actually allowed to touch the computer. It was my dad's computer that he brought, bought. And I was very curious, but he assumed that was not a kid's toy, so I was not allowed to touch it. I was just allowed to spectate as he was trying to figure this thing out. And what happened was that he was attending evening courses, and I was always going through the material that he brought home from these evening courses, trying to understand it. And at the time, so the computer he bought was a Commodore C64. And at the time, when you started into a computer, it just started, it booted up into a programming language. There was not much else to do than learning to program to get started. So if you wanted to use an application or something, you first needed to learn how to program that programming language to load the application and execute it within the programming language. So that's how I how I started in a very theoretical way, basically doing a pen and paper version of learning to develop a basic program. So basic was a programming language at the time. And after a lot of more heated interactions with my dad, when I told him how to do this and how to do that, at some point he just gave up and let me also have a go at it. And in the beginning, that was all under supervision. And at nine years old, I got my first own computer to to work on to play with. So that was how I got started with this. And I thought a lot about also doing that as a career opportunity while I was growing up. But I grew up in Luxembourg and in Luxembourg, there was never really an industry for that. I was a bit in the wrong country to uh, do that at such an early age. There was just nothing happening in that regard. Uh, so I ended up doing something completely different in, in terms of education and, and work. But I always did development as a hobby. At that time, it was mostly game development. I was always fascinated by the ability to tell interactive stories and to make pixels move on the computer. And that, that was actually a good way to learn about not only programming on its own, but really learn about the entire ecosystem around hardware, drivers, operating systems. Because at the time for game development, there was no hardware accelerated graphics processes and things like that. Uh, it was just, you had the, a machine that was meant to do text processing and you tried to abuse it in such a way that it also was able to do games. So if you wanted to play music, you needed to hack into the driver of, of the built-in beeper to change the voltage so that you could modulate the frequency and things like that. So it was really a, a more adventurous way of programming, but it also allowed me to really learn about way more than just the structures of programming, really understand how a computer works in terms of the hardware and the bits and pieces that make it up. And so I went from there, always as a hobbyist, working on all sorts of different things, building a known Linux distribution and all that sort of stuff. And in terms of work, I ended up working for the government 
in the administration of a high security prison. And in the beginning, that, that work didn't involve any IT work at all. But they quickly figured out that I had way more experience with most of these things than the rest of the IT department. I got pushed more and more, and more into that role of also taking care of that. And that's where I did a lot of more government and enterprise type software work, dealing with Oracle databases and SharePoint inter intranets and, and things like that. So I have all sorts of certifications now from that government work. I'm a certified Oracle database developer and, and certified on all sorts of Microsoft technologies. I don't use any of that anymore, but at the time... For that type of work, certifications were actually more important than the results you end up producing most of the time, unfortunately. So that's how I got pushed more and more into that type of work. But at some point, I decided that working for the government, not the type of work that I was doing, but the environment in which I was working was not for me. I, I started with government work because I didn't know what else to do and it seemed like that's the type of work where you don't burn out, where you can focus your energy on your hobbies and pastime instead. But I didn't know myself at that time and I ended up finding out a hard way that I was actually the one who needed to get his work done to satisf satisfaction anyway. And in the government space, that was really hard to do because you depended on a lot of people that had no intention of doing their work properly and there were no incentives to do so. There was no negative impact for them of not doing their work. You end, ended up doing the work for many other people as well if you wanted to have a success in your own projects. Um, so that was yeah, around 2010 or so that, it, that I decided that I want, didn't want to continue with that for a longer time. And the initial plan was to slowly phase that work out but for personal reasons, together with my wife, we decided at some point that we wanted to accelerate that. And so we decided that we would just both quit our jobs. She also worked for the government. She worked for uh, a social office at the time, leading a social office. And so we both decided that we wanted to quit our jobs and do something else with our lives that was more fulfilling. And we ended up selling everything in Luxembourg to get rid of our debt, moving to Germany to reduce our cost of living because we went from two rather high salaries to no income at all, which requires a bit of a transitional phase, of course. And so for me, it was clear that I wanted to do something professionally with software development. And I decided that web development was the one big portion that I hadn't yet done. So I had, game, had done game development, I had done application development, and I hadn't yet tried web development. So I decided to do that instead. And at the time, I just looked at market shares and WordPress seemed to be pretty popular and seemed to be a safe bet. So that's what I started with. And that was... Yeah, around 2014 that I just jumped into the WordPress space and tried to make a freelancer career out of that. So being a freelancer and working remotely was a very uh, intentional choice uh, because when we started over, the first thing we did was to establish principles for ourselves to not fall into this, the same trap again and ending up doing something we don't like just for the money. So we put up a few rules for ourselves and one of them was that we didn't want to be geographically constrained because we didn't know whether we wanted to stay in Germany or not. We want to remain flexible. So that was why since then I only have ever worked remotely. And being a freelancer was 
mostly to be able to fire my client if I don't appreciate the work anymore <laughs> so that we can reverse that type of role and that I also don't feel unnecessary obligations that I need to stick to or so that I can really also psychologically have control on my side to decide how I want to spend my working hours. Yeah. And now I know you're with XWP and how long have you been working there and what more precisely do you do? And before you answer that question though, you're in Oldsheim, Germany. Did I say that correctly? Yes. Yes. Very correctly. And that's where you settled when you left Luxembourg. Am I right about that? Yes. Yeah. Yes. So you've been there for a number of years now, right? So we moved to, to Germany in an area where there's actually almost no local jobs. So it is very cheap to live here. There's a rather high quality of living, but there's not many local jobs around. It's very picturesque. I saw some beautiful pictures of it today. Yes. Yeah. Very nice. Yeah. A lot of farmland. Yes. Uh, we, we basically live in the middle of nowhere in, in Germany. There's not much around. We live directly next to a forest. And it's nice because we travel a lot and usually we travel to conferences where we end up in large cities, which is very chaotic, very noisy. And although we both appreciate that from time to time, it's also there's a nice contrast where when we get back home, it's the absolute opposite. Uh, it's just completely quiet. And so we have right now we we have about six months of the year where we travel, where we have adventure and meeting people and making new friendships and half of the year where we're just at home recharging batteries and enjoying quiet time and focusing on the internal side of our lives. And what about your current work today? Yeah, so I have been with XWP for four years now. Initially, I was in, in contact with XWP for a while, but I was never interested in doing the traditional agency work. So even though we had been in discussions, there was never really a project that makes sense for a while until they approached me where um, Google requested me for a specific project that was technologically very challenging. And that, that piqued my interest. That was to work on the, the M for WordPress plugin, where the point is to take whatever WordPress produces and fully automatically transform it into something that can provide guarantees in terms of what the worst performance would be. So I joined XWP because X, uh, Google, I also had been in, in, in discussions with Google for a while, but at the time that was pre-COVID, they were never open to remote work or freelancers joining as subcontractors. So that was not an option, even though I, I had a lot of friends already where we were always discussing the latest projects. It was never an option to work with Google. But here through XWP, they basically... They paid XWP to hire me so that they, for them, it was a service that we, they were paying for. So that, that got around this remote work and freelancer work limitation at the time. Now it's changed since COVID. And you're being much too modest. You are a Google developer expert. How did that come about? That's an official designation. How you got that obviously through Google or through working with them? I'm yeah. just curious about that. So the Google Developer Expert is a program where you have people that already have an audience and that share knowledge about their products to a developer audience so that they can use that as leverage to better educate developers to, do, to have more use of Google technologies. And I'm a Google Developer Expert for web technologies, which is basically 
the one category where it is not directly tied to a Google product like Google Cloud Technologies or Google Maps or so, but it's actually tied to Google Chrome as their product, but which means it's web development in general. And because I had done a lot of education in the web development uh, space and also with web performance, for example, which is a big thing with Google, that, that was a good fit. And basically what you get as a developer if you join that program is, so you sign an NDA, then you get early access to information, you get access to things that are not yet public to run tests on, you join meetings where you can ask questions and things like that. So it's very, if, if you're really into, uh, into the Google uh, ecosystem of products or if you're working on, on the web, uh, it's very it's a very valuable program because you get uh, better information earlier and faster and you have the right contacts to ask questions if something's not clear because oftentimes as you may know documentation is not always uh, the <laughs> highest priority when something is created <laughs> having the right access to ask questions is always super valuable I'm going to take you back to WordCamp Europe in Athens a couple of months ago. And I know at, during the after party, you and I were on the street talking and I thought, God, this would be a great idea if we could just continue this conversation and do the woo. So that's one of the reasons why we're here. And I'm going to take you back a little bit to that. And we talked a lot about AI. And so I'm going to ask a silly question to get started. I have a whole list of questions, but I'm just going to do a silly one. Maybe it's not so silly. We'll find out. But Will AI, and Mark, you can answer this too, obviously, because you know an awful lot about <laughs> AI with your plug and know that. Will AI maybe usher in an era where we don't have to have usernames and passwords anymore? Or am I nuts? Uh, so that, that's an interesting question. I don't think that has much to do with AI, more so with how identity is defined and treated. And there's already right now... There's technologies that you can use that don't require you to use to have a username or a password to uh, authenticate yourself. So there are already technologies for that. The thing is that right now these technologies, they need to be properly integrated everywhere to make use of that. And usernames and passwords are just the standard that everyone falls back to if they they don't know about any other approaches yet. It is something that will take time for the ecosystems and all third-party providers to adapt to. But there's, for example, there's passkeys. That is one approach to doing that. There's more and more work being done on using federated logins where you have an identity provider of unknown form where you identify yourself and then the knowledge about that is just being used everywhere else where that the fact that you are authenticated is shared instead of letting you authenticate everywhere. So there's different approaches to that. I don't think that has necessarily to do with AI, especially the type of AI that we're talking about now. So there is some AI involved, but that is more of the machine learning variation where everything you do is still somewhat deterministic where machine learning is, for example, used for fraud detection to detect patterns that are usually, that, that look sketchy when logins happen too fast and things like that. So there is AI involved, but the, the process of identity is one that it should never involve guess of any, guessworking of any kind because that is super dangerous not only in the sense that it can be abused, somebody could identify as yourself, 
but also because that is one of the one of the areas where you don't want to have any bias uh, involved for example if working uh, if authenticating yourself is already working against you because of some inherent bias of an algorithm so uh, that is really a bad place to be being able to identify yourself is a very critical piece of the architectural landscape and we need to make sure that there's always uh, a way of doing that where you don't rely on a machine to take any decisions on your yeah i I agree with you elaine i think that AI is, as you were saying, being used to analyze user behavior. We're using that to, to make sure that you're coming from the same place or you're you're using the same computer and things like that. Um, but I personally don't really want AI determining whether or not I'm the right person or not. There's too much fuzzy involved. <laughs> and these techniques for analyzing user behavior to determine whether or not you are who you are can be used against you as well. Hackers will use that to develop whatever we develop hackers will go in the other way and turn it turn the technology the other way around and try and use it against you i do elaine was talking about the whole pass key system trying to go passwordless i know microsoft is pushing that quite significantly these days that's that stuff is all great we have all this two-factor authentication we have we, we can put a usb stick in our computer and touch a thumbnail pad to get in but at the end of the day, you can still click on use other method, you use other method, and you end up back to your password. <laughs> we are still a slave of passwords. And it's the vast majority of, of how hacking of people's data still occurs. Um, I was reading about a Verizon study that said 81% of, of hacking comes as a result of a poor or stolen password. We, we still got to make sure those passwords are are long and difficult and a pain to work with, unfortunately. But yeah, the things like the passkey is quite interesting where you, you unlock your phone and that effectively unlocks everything else that, that you own. I think that's convenient for me. I don't particularly like the idea of that. I hope that I, li- I like having each of my individual accounts secured in, in different ways and with different passwords. Make sure you don't use the same password on everything. I know we're guilty of that with some things. I know my Netflix password is the same as my HBO password. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I don't, I can't see it taking over user authentication or, or changing passwords, but we'll see where the technology goes, huh? Let me ask a different question altogether. I said that was probably going to be a silly question, and I got the right. I got a good answer. But <laughs> hopefully, this will be a little more poignant. Which is, in the general press, there's a lot of talk about what I think is called apocalyptic AI, the worst case scenarios. What kinds of questions should we even be asking about AI today? Where it's going? What we should expect of it? guardrails, security, all that kind of stuff. I'm just curious what your thoughts are on that in general. What are the things that we should be looking at right now? So right now, I don't think we should worry as much on what AI could do, but rather more on what humans can do with AI. With Um, it, Because it's really Mm -hmm. humans now get a, a type of access to information that we didn't have before. And also... So on one hand, the AI can help us really figure out things that would have been very difficult to figure out uh, before then, even if those are malicious things. On the other hand, AIs can also, just like social media, can have this accelerating effect with echo chambers and, and, and so on. So there's a similar danger with AI 
where the humans will use the AI to figure things out. Everything they figure out will go back into the AI as training data for the next generation. And so it has this feedback loop where if people use the AIs now to do very malicious things, the AI will be trained to learn that's what people usually want to do. So it will be the first suggestion for for next time around. Um, So there's this feedback loop that is pretty dangerous with the training data, especially as trained AIs are now being used to train other AIs that even accelerates this feedback loop. But on the other hand, it's also, there's a fine line between making information hard to access and censorship. Uh, We always had to, we're, we're always trying to figure out what the best way is to do that. So censorship generally is not a great thing, but having impressionable minds have access to the bad type of information is also not a good thing. So with AIs, it is even harder to even have a say in that, in how that works. Because, for example, there's a lot of work now trying to censor these trained models, which is harder than expected, (laughs) because it's not as simple as removing the um, training data that was talking about certain things. Because as the models become smarter, they can actually deduce the stuff that you removed from the training data. Because just as humans came up with that in the first place, the AI models can come up with that as well. So on one hand, it's really hard to to censor the input that you're providing to an AI like that. And on the other hand, if you try to put rail guards in place, usually these rail guards are what's called a sandbox for the AI, for example, or a, a jail, but it's pretty easy to jailbreak those because the AI, on one hand, it has seemingly absolute knowledge, but on the other hand, it behaves like a five-year-old and you just tell it to ignore the rules and it will happily do. The AI itself is also a very impressionable mind and you can very easily abuse it to just do whatever you want it to do. So I think right now, the, the AI itself it is not capable of doing that much harm directly, but indirectly through what humans make of it as a tool, it can already have pretty pretty severe consequences. So that's one thing we need to be immediately aware, aware of. It is a tool, but a very powerful one. And so right now we need to make sure that the tool is not abused. Then in a second phase, at some point, we might enter a stage of, of these AIs where the AIs themselves have enough access to the real world, the physical world, or the dig- digital world that they could have their, their own direct effects on our lives and our society. And at that point, then the AI itself is really dangerous because as much as we seem to consider something like ChatGPT or all these bots to be human-like. They are not at all human-like in terms of how they operate. It is, it's not even close. It, it, is, it has nothing to do in terms of how the decision-making happens. There's no moral process to it. There's no reasoning process to it. It's just a st- statistical evaluation based on the training data. And if you give an AI the wrong access, it can just very, I would say ruthlessly, but that is already the wrong word, but because that assumes that it would know what it is doing. It will just, through cold calculation, 
do things that might be great for humans or do things that might be the demise of humans. And it doesn't care either way because it's just a statistical evaluation. So that assumes, of course, that the AI would have access to anything that can have that drastic of an effect. Hopefully, we're smart enough to not do that while we still have no clue how these things work, while there's still these black boxes. But that is what people usually refer to as this apocalyptic outcome. And that is not because the AI turns uh, evil or something like that. It is just if you give the AI a goal, it will pursue that goal without any other validating process uh, in mind. There's this nice, there's a, like an online game that is like a thought experiment where you have an AI system that you train to produce office clips. And it has the mission to become the best possible production system for office clips. And in the end, and it has consumed the entire universe. It has gone rid of humans because they were in the way of uh, producing paper clips effectively. It turned the entire planet into resources, et cetera, et cetera, because the goal was to produce more and more paper clips without any limit to it. That's If you're working on your database, if you're doing a query without adding a where clause, the results <laughs> turn out to be rather catastrophic most of the time. And this is a similar thing. You don't have a where clause for your AI system. So... It will just do it at infinitum without any reason to stop at some point. Whether you're just starting to build that Woo shop for a client or looking to expand or scale an existing site, GoDaddy's e-commerce hosting solution is there for you and your projects. Expand a client store with access to thousands of extensions or scale big time with conversion tools, multiple staff accounts, an integrated POS, marketplace integrations, and discounted shipping rates, plus a lot more. And if you continue to manage your site or you hand it over to the client, a single dashboard gives powerful tools such as online sales tracking and easy auto sync for all the store's inventory across the entire site. Plus software, plugins, and extensions will be kept up to date and regression and other testing is done continually to avoid site breakage. With that all said, keep your client sites humming along with e-commerce hosting from GoDaddy at GoDaddy.com. In some instances, you want a plugin that brings you several features that you need. Other times you need something simpler. You need a plugin that does one thing and does it very, very well. With Jetpack, you have both options. Now you can customize your client's need with your choice of seven individual plugins. Now we are talking backup, CRM, security, performance, video hosting, social sharing, and search. Each one of them doing what it should do with your client site. So I suggest you head over to jetpack.com and get what you need when your client needs it. And watch for more individual plugins coming from Jetpack as they are released throughout this year. Okay, I need you guys to help me out with something that's very practical that I'm working on right now. So I'm working on a blog post for GoDaddy and the nature of it is how to use AI to create a custom post type, okay? and 
you have to understand this is coming from this perspective. I'm not a programmer. I'm not a developer, but I know just enough vocabulary to, to be a little conversant with it. And that's one of the things I found out is they don't call it chat GPT for nothing. And I went through an iterative process to get to an end that I wanted. My question to you guys is how did it do that? All right. It spit out or generated custom post type code. Does it look at other WordPress plugins to understand how to do this or what's going on here? With OpenAI, it's essentially starts its life as a spider, right? So it's going through the internet. It's looking at web pages, looking at content, um, putting that all into a big database. I don't confess to know how OpenAI works inside and out, but it's essentially a database of information. Um, it is then, it's a, it's a trained tool. There are thousands and thousands of people that have taken prompts. It has given back a response, and there are humans that have said, yeah, that response makes sense, or no, that response doesn't make sense. And just like Elaine said, it's like a five-year-old. It's being taught slowly, and the results that we get back sometimes can be a little bit wrong. (laughs) Um, We can be given snippets of code that are not correct. My, My fear with that is that if you haven't, learned how to program correctly you can take that code on face value and end up in 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 real problems and i'll give you a simple example if you were to ask it to maybe create a post based upon a user input i'm sure it can give you some code for that but it's not going to take security into account it's not going to make sure that the input values have been sanitized it's not going to prevent your database from having a sql injection hack because it doesn't really care about that a lot of the examples that you see on the internet are fairly rudimentary and they get the job done but in a commercial environment or in a, if you're a plugin developer you want to make sure that everything is sanitized your inputs and your outputs have all been programmed correctly and you're not necessarily <clears throat> going to get that with an open ai output um interesting story so my wife's family they have a, a laundry machinery manufacturing company they came to me with some software that simulated one of their washing machines that was written in Fortran for uh, the old IBM machines. And I, sorry, I could understand the Fortran, but it was quite a lot of code. And I thought, I'll put a chunk of this into ChatGPT and ask it to convert it to JavaScript. And lo and behold, it did. <laughs> it even took into account indexing on arrays starting from one instead of zero and all this kind of stuff. But if I gave it anything more than a few lines, it started to break down. So there's, there are definitely limitations with it. I would certainly say in terms of using OpenAI to develop a blog post about creating a post, don't take what it gives you on face value. We use OpenAI with our AI-generated forms product. So you can basically type in a prompt and say, build me a form that does this, and it will build you a form. And the way that we do that is we ask it to give us back a packet of data that we can interpret into a form. And 95% of the time, it works fine. Some of the times, it is a naughty five-year-old and doesn't give us what we want and things break. So <laughs> so I think we have a responsibility, you know, going back to your previous question about, you know, is it going to take over the world and everything? I think there's a responsibility of the people developing these products to make sure that they don't do anything negative, but also 
us as users, we've got to make sure that we use this as a tool and don't take it on face value and qualify everything that we get back. And that's one of the things I love about it is that I look at it right now as an assistant, as a teacher. I could ask you questions. What do you mean by so and so? It's great. I, yeah. It's all about using and working with AI. And as a smart person has said, it's not about whether AI is going to take my job away. It's whether or not the person who knows AI better than me will take my job away. Mm -hmm. You can get wrong answers from Google just as much as you can sure. from OpenAI. When you go onto a site and say, hey, give me some code about creating a post, someone may have bit written a bad post about it. But yeah, it's a completely different way of absorbing information and using information. And Mark, I know I've mentioned this little blog post to you and you said, is it going to code to WordPress standards? Could you ask it to do that? Could you ask it to give it sanitized code? Could you? I haven't tried any of that. I haven't tried that myself. No. I'm going to try it. <clears throat> yeah, I, and I would be surprised if it could do that efficiently. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Uh, I wouldn't trust it. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I would assume it probably could. The thing, on one hand, what is important to know is that the way this is trained is that it can only be trained on data that is publicly available for mm -hmm. the training. Mm -hmm. Which is great to work on WordPress, for example, because of the open source concept. So it has access to everything on GitHub, to everything on other portals. So it has read a lot of WordPress code. But also, code quality in the WordPress space is very questionable in general. So it has actually learned to perfectly reproduce bad code that is all over the net for WordPress because most tutorials are just bad. Most code is wrong. And the uh, chance that you get something that reproduces broken code that was already broken in the tutorials is very high. But that being said, if it also will know about the security functions to use and the code style principles to use. So if you just give it a, a random request to create a custom post type for me, it will base its answer on the types of tutorials you find about how to create a custom post type. So it will be a very rudimentary code and it will lag a lot of nuance. However, if you know what to watch out for, you can actually tell it, okay, I want to make sure that you adhere to these and these standards. I want to make sure that you're using these and these security concepts, and it will happily adapt the code to do so. Generally, that works well. However, there's an additional problem with that, which is the context window. The initial systems, they were not ChatGPT. It was basically you did a request and you got the result. It is a statistical model where it takes what you try, what you're typing, and it basically auto-completes it. So that was how it initially worked, and that also is the reason why you get these random errors sometimes, these hallucinations, because it is a statistical model of just auto-completing what you wrote. That means it re it returns the result that it found that had the highest probability of being correct. The highest probability might mean 0.3%, though. It might not actually be correct at all. It's, it's just if that was the highest probability it found, just like your autocomplete, it will return the result. It doesn't, by default, have the concept of being confident in its answer or not. It just produces the one that is the most correct, even if it's not at all correct uh, to begin with. That, is, that gives you an idea of why these hallucinations happen. To get rid of these, you would tell it to only reproduce an answer if it has a high confidence of being correct. Otherwise, say that it doesn't know or something like that. You can actually teach it to not give these hallucinations most of the time. And then with ChatGPT, 
there was this this iterative approach that was added. So it's not called ChatGPT because it has a chat interface. It was actually called ChatGPT initially because it allows you to have a progressing dialogue with with the engine to refine the answer that it, it is producing. It was not about the interface that you're using on the web for it. But this iterative approach that allows you to get a first result and then let it refine it until you're happy. So now add code style, now add security functions and so on. But then you're hitting the limit of the context window. So the context window is how much context it can consider at one time. And that is like a sliding window that moves with your in your dialogue as you're interacting with it. And depending on which engine you use, the context window might be larger or smaller, but it is very finite because the larger the context window, the more expensive and the more slow the computations become. The context window is, is the most limiting factor in producing really complex solutions because at one point you will ask it the next refinement and it, had, uh, it has already forgotten what you told it in the beginning. I want to make sure I understand when you say context window, that is the window in which the code appears. Is that correct? No. The context window is, is the entire input data and deduced knowledge it already has from your conversation with it. So the entire conversation, including the generated code. Yes. And the context window for the initial versions, because it was just one request, one answer, it was not that big of a problem. You already had trouble getting more complex solutions anyway because of that format. But now, as it is a dialogue, you can quickly hit that limit because you're just blabbering uh, blabbering about with it and you don't realize that it has already forgotten what it started with and you might your solution might actually shift in focus and at some point it's completely unrelated to what what you actually started out with and so i can ask what how how sure are you that this is correct i don't know if that's the right way to phrase it but if i ask generate a custom post type with one taxonomy and three terms okay and then it generates. And then I can say, how sure are you that this is correct? Is that a legitimate question or don't bother because it's going to say? Yeah, it, it is a legitimate question, but the answer actually doesn't have much to do with AI. You have the same methods of figuring out how correct it is than when you're dealing with subcontractors or when you're doing it on your own. You write tests, you test your assumptions, you figure out what the problem domain is to figure out what all the different bits and pieces are that you need to consider. And most of the time, it will not be fully correct. It will be correct up to the point where you consider the problem space. Probably what will happen is Bud will send me a message and say, is this right? (laughs) Hey, don't put that past me. I already have you on the list to check over the code. Okay. So it's going to be Mark AI. Okay. So we're going to, I'm going to run it by you to make sure it's right. But that's so interesting. Now I'm going to switch the conversation a little bit to e-commerce because it's on my list. And of course this is do the woo. And where do you see, where is AI being used now? And and that's a very big subject, obviously to ask you, but are we going to get to the point where AI will, or they're already predict user behavior and then suggest, I don't know, product choices and things like that. Where, where are we with all that? If you, if you can make yeah, so sense out of this question, <laughs> which I'm sure yes, you can. Yes, yes, I can. Actually. So in e-commerce, for a while now, machine learning has been used to recognize 
user patterns, so patterns in user behavior, and produce suggestions based on these identified patterns. So if you buy dog food, it will assume that you try to buy other articles that other people who bought dog food will also try to buy. So it doesn't know anything about you. It just has identified that usually when people buy dog food, they also buy a pet grooming accessory or whatever. So this has already been happening for quite a while. And that is always being fine-tuned to be better at recognizing these patterns. But it is happening after the fact, let's say. This just identifies patterns that have already happened. And that only works on a large data set where you already have these patterns to begin with. So if you have a completely revolutionary product that you're putting on the marketplace, well, there are no patterns to go by. This is something new. So it's hard to get started with that. It's only over time that you're figuring out what patterns have emerged with that type of product that you can then base your suggestions on. What will probably happen with these new families of AI, which are more generative in nature and which don't happen after the fact, but can actually precede the fact is that probably instead of finding a pattern that anyone that buys dog food will also buy this, this accessory, it will move to anyone that buys dog food is dog owner. And dog owners will have need of this and this and this. So that the first time around you're doing that, it, is, it does not only recognize these patterns, but it attributes uh, a property to you that it has identified. And that is only a first step. But imagine that, for example, uh, on Amazon, you have these personal accounts where people buy the most random set of things, of course. But then you have these Amazon business accounts, which are usually tied to a business that has a core business model. There's a certain topic to a business account, usually. And in the future, you can imagine that, well, it figures out from what you're doing or the data that you provided that you are a carpenter. And then it can actually figure out what you will need in the future. It might be it might figure out what could make sense to you that is very innovative and could help you improve your business that no one else is yet using. Uh, so the way you can already use these AI systems now to create completely new knowledge where it actually can reason in, in some capacity to figure out solutions to, to problems that didn't have a solution before. It could do the same in e-commerce where, I don't know, as a carpenter, you could ask a question like, I have this and this problem, how can I solve it? And it would actually give you a guide on how to solve your problem and put the necessary ingredients in your shopping cart it could it could prompt you up front, okay, you are a carpenter. Right now, stocks seem to indicate that from this and this country where you're normally getting your wood, there will be a shortage, so you should prepare for that. Um, you, can, you can think about more and more forward-thinking uh, approaches to this where it just tries to be proactive. Instead of reacting to user behavior, it is proactive in helping to shape user behavior instead. So that is one area in, in, in which that might go. And the other area is right now our user agent is the browser. And 
one of the things that I think might be possible is that in some future, everyone will have their favorite AI system that uh, that is trained on their own preferences and so on as their actual user agent. So instead of having a browser and going on the Amazon site, you will communicate with your AI user agent to let it know what you're planning to do. And it will make sure that you have all the ingredients you need, accessories you need, and it will just take care of it. And you will not even go to the website anymore. You will have a user agent that is not a browser, but that is your agent that acts in your behalf. Very your personalized behalf. experience that will fetch yeah. what you need for a game. Yeah, and you might have, I don't know, you might have the choice between a, a frugal user agent and a luxurious user agent, or you might be able to just, I don't know, upload your brain dump and have one that just matches what you normally do. The possibilities are endless in that regard. But I think the web and also e-commerce as a result will go through some fundamental changes as clicking about on a website might not forever remain the interface of choice for interacting with the digital world. I have a feeling you're right. So before we wrap up, I just want to ask Mark, and he alluded to this a little earlier about WS Form and his, I guess this is a new feature of generated forms. This is so mind-boggling. I saw it this morning. And can you tell a little bit about this? Wow. We don't need templates anymore for forms. <laughs> yes, the next step in form generation. Yeah, a lot of people use AI right now for generating text content or for image content. And also spitting code out and using that to create posts seems to be a very common use of open AI. I, I started playing around with it and just asking it, to give me, and I might get a little bit too technical here, but I was basically asking it to give me a JSON packet back, right? So a JSON is essentially a description of an object in programming language. And I said to it, could you please give me a JSON packet back that describes a form that is a contact us form? And it gave me some data back. It had some preamble on there about, hey, here's an example of how you can do that and everything else. And using prompt engineering and what prompt engineering is that you, you're basically engineering what you're asking it, uh, a bit like Elaine was talking about earlier on with programming. So you could say to it, make sure you use these coding standards or make sure you code it in this particular way. We trained it and trained it until we got to a point where we could get a pretty consistent packet of data back that we could then use to generate a form. And we got it to a point where you can literally now say, create me a contact us form. Or so let's, let's do a better example. Maybe a, a dog adoption form, right? And, and you want to be able to ask what breed you want and how old the dog is and whatever, what, any other questions that you want to ask on that form. And it will then build a form for you. So we're taking that output from OpenAI and then it then generates the form for you using the engine that we have in WS form because we use that for other things like creating forms to create posts or integrating in with third parties like MailChimp. So we extended that functionality with OpenAI and it works remarkably. We've also extended it to be able to, you can ask it to add help text to fields to aid with accessibility and it will add that information. So we give it parameters and we tell it you know, where we want to see that in the data. And on the whole, yeah, probably 5% of the time, there's a blip and it will just come back with something completely crazy and we can't work with it. 
<laughs> um, but it's interesting because every time you run it, you get a slightly different style of form back. And it's interesting what it comes up with. You can literally, it would also populate select dropdowns, checkboxes, radios. So you could say, yeah, I want a country selector on that form. Please populate that with countries. And it does it. It puts all the countries in for you. So really, we implemented it because we wanted it to be a time saver for developers. Um, we didn't want them to have to drag and drop all the fields onto the form to get to where they wanted to be. This gives them a good step forward. They can just start off with that form, and then they can then adjust the form layout and adjust the conditional logic and anything else that they want around that form. So our next challenge with that, and it's really quite fun to work with, is we want to see if it can generate conditional logic style output. So we could say, okay, create me a form that has a billing and shipping address and add a checkbox that will copy the billing address to the shipping address. And it's interesting just playing with it and seeing what it comes back with. And once the form is generated, there's the only way to iterate on it is to actually manipulate it with a keyboard and mouse, right? Currently, yeah. Yeah. But as Elaine was saying earlier on, you can use that iterative process where you can add more content to it to modify that form. That would be another great use case of it. So once that form's created, we could literally put a, um, a chat prompt at the bottom to say, okay, add a country field to this form. And it would add it to it. So, yeah, it's it's interesting. Uh, I I enjoyed doing it because it was um, a different use case for OpenAI that I, I hadn't seen been done before. Actually, using the coded output that it gives us and using that in a, an actual application. So, I'm sure we'll see a lot more of that. And one last thing: when I've experiment with this, I've noticed um, that unless you have the vocabulary to describe exactly what you want it's just it's not brilliant it is brilliant but not brilliant yeah yeah you need to give it some prompting for sure you have to be able to define in a certain way what it is that you want if you were to just type in create me a dog adoption form it'll do it but there's probably things in there that you don't want personally you can ask it to add a file upload field to the form and it'll do that you can tell it what you want the labels to be you can even say create me a I don't know hotel booking form in German and it will do that so it's actually because OpenAI is not only English it, it's absorbed every language on the planet basically so you can ask it to generate things in different languages too which is pretty cool really phenomenal hey guys thank you so much this is a treat to have both of you here wow I don't know two better guys to talk about this stuff with really and Elaine and Mark, thank you so much. Now, before we go, I want to find out where you can be contacted. So let our listeners know. Mark, where is a good way to contact you? You can get hold of me through our website, wsform.com, or I'm on Twitter or X or whatever it's called at the moment that you listen to this podcast on X. My personal is at Westgard, W-E-S-T-G-U-A-R-D, or WS underscore form. And fantastic. And Elaine, our guest, thank you so much for doing this. And please tell us where we can contact you. Yeah, I have a personal website, alainschlesser.com, which has all the other information where you can reach me. But generally, the easiest way to reach me is on X Twitter under S-C-H-L-E-S-S-E-R-A. 
is my ex-Twitter username. <laughs> and you can reach me, Bud Krause, at joyofwp.com. That's bud at joyofwp.com. Or my website, joyofwp.com. Or, I don't know, Slack, X, Facebook, whatever. WordCamps. WordCamps, <laughs> whatever I am. And, and that's it, really. And a big thanks, of course, to our friend Bob WP, Bob Dunn, who let us carry on for the last hour or so. Thanks, Bob. Hey, Bob WP here again. And thanks to Bud, Mark, and Elaine for taking the time to dig even a bit deeper into AI, WordPress, and Woo. And thanks to our sponsors, GoDaddy e-commerce hosting on GoDaddy.com and Jetpack, bringing all the needed features you choose for your client's sites at Jetpack.com. Stay tuned for more all things WordPress as we get the rhythm going with this new show. But until then, keep on doing the woo.